I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. We'll be talking first about Barclays and the dramatic resignations last week of Chairman Marcus Aegis, followed one day later by Bob Diamond, the Chief Executive. Next, we'll look at the prospect for UK bank bonuses following news that Chancellor George Osborne is preparing to fight EU proposals for bonus caps. And finally, we'll turn to Spanish banks and the possibility that a line could finally be drawn under the disastrous state of affairs for the Spanish banks following a uh, European finance minister's meeting in Brussels. This week, we are joined in the studio here by Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, Brooke Masters, our chief regulation correspondent, and down the line from Miles Johnson in Madrid. First, though, to Barclays. Charlene, last week was really quite a dramatic week. Everyone knew that Barclays was one of the banks involved in this LIBOR rate-rigging scandal. The 20 banks have been uh, embroiled in that whole affair with regulators around the world. But Barclays kind of came to the fore the week, a couple of weeks ago because they settled this regulatory probe uh, across the world with a £290 million settlement and they thought they were being very clever about it and resolving the issue uh, early for shareholders. Not everyone saw it that way, particularly the UK politicians and Marcus Ages promptly fell on his sword on Monday, but that wasn't enough. So late on Monday evening, the chairman, Marcus Agis, who had resigned earlier that that day, got a couple of phone calls from two of the most senior regulators in the UK saying, look, this is not going to draw a line under the scandal. Uh, We want more action. Basically, we want Mr. Diamond to go as well. Now, Mm. what led to those calls was a sort of fascinating story. And by all accounts, you know, there was pressure within the government. They couldn't make that sort of direct and explicit call for Bob Diamond's head. But that was clearly what David Cameron and George Osborne wanted to see. And so, you know, first thing the next day, we, we got that resignation swiftly followed by that of Jerry Dalmissia, the chief operating officer. So really just dramatic clear out at Barclays and left everyone a bit shell-shocked, I think. And Brooke, the following day, I think it was last Wednesday, it seems a very long time ago now, but Bob Diamond was in front of the Treasury Select Committee giving his evidence on the whole affair. I mean, one of the most interesting things that we learned going into that uh, TSC appearance was uh, through the release of documents that Barclays did just the night before, including a memo purporting to record the conversation that had taken place between Mr Diamond and, and Paul Tucker at the Bank of England over part of the period when the LIBOR um, allegations relate to. What did we? What do you think we learned then? And obviously, we we don't know the, the both sides of the story, if you like. But um, what do you suspect was going on? Well, what we know is that during this period, from about the collapse of Northern Rock in September two thousand and seven, right through to May two thousand nine, off and on, Barclays got very nervous about having higher. Uh, LIBOR rates reported than its other um, competitors. And at times, 
it, they lied. They simply lowballed their estimates of how much they could borrow at. This and is it, because LIBOR is seen, and especially amid the crisis, was seen as a key kind of proxy for financial strength and, and people who saw high rates being put in for the LIBOR panel, which is averaged to produce the LIBOR rate ultimately, were, were kind of almost, um, I don't know, uh, seen as particularly weak and vulnerable. Absolutely. And the crucial period that all this surrounded was in October of 2008, which is right after Lehman goes down. And virtually every other weak bank was getting rescued. RBS had already been rescued. HBOS had already been forced into Lloyd's. Um, the Swiss had rescued their banks. And during this period, Barclays keeps coming out as having one of the very highest estimates of what it thinks it can must pay to borrow. Barclays had announced they were not going to take government aid under any circumstances. And so, and they was- were on the verge of getting capital from the Middle East, from the Qatari investors, which was a crucial thing, I think, in this uh, particular note around Paul Tucker. Absolutely. And um, certainly by then, the FSA, the regulators knew the Qataris were coming. And I assume Paul Tucker did as well, although we don't know that it's not explicitly said. Um, And so Paul Tucker picks up the phone and calls Bob Diamond, who is then head of Barclays Capital, and says, you know, basically, what's up with your LIBOR rates? I'm hearing from senior Whitehall figures. And it turns out to be the cabinet secretary, who is not a labor politician, Hmm. um, but basically asking, why is Barclays still so high? Hmm. And um, with with the idea that does does this mean that you know we need to nationalize you? Well, that's what Bob Diamond thought the yeah. conversation meant. Bob Diamond thought say like basically saw it as a conversation as sort it or yeah. we're going to have to nationalize you. Yeah. He then writes this note to file, which he emails to Jerry Del Messier and John Varley, who was then CEO, that basically says that Tucker is asking questions, senior Whitehall figures are asking questions, and our rate doesn't always need to be this high. Yeah. Jerry interprets this email to mean get the rate the bid down mm. and and they duly drop their bid dramatically mm. um within about a week half um, a percentage point or 60 basis point overnight 70, basically 70 yeah. Yeah. Uh, 70 overnight now to be fair to them this is the same day that Elster darling signals a rate cut is cutting yeah. coming and hsbc for example drops you know three tenths of a percent they all drop time. but not as much as but Barclays is double everybody yeah. else yeah and so and within the week the rate cut comes and everybody drops and Barclays stops lying but mm. for a week Barclays lies because Jerry says, the Bank of England says, we should lie. Yeah. Um, both Bob Diamond and the settlement documents insist that Paul Tucker did not mean lie. And mm. I think there, it is possible to put a more innocent interpretation on that email than Jerry did. Yeah. Um, it will be interesting to hear what Mr. Tucker has to say. Mr. What- Tucker, we should say, is addressing the TSC on Monday uh, late evening. And then we've got Marcus Aegis addressing the TSC again on Tuesday. So. And we should be hearing from the FSA later in the week as well. So it's, yeah. it'll be another week of all LIBOR all the time. This story will, will rumble on. Do you think, Charlene, there's there's more to come in terms of Barclays? I mean, the, the clear news that they have to announce at some point is who's going to be the next chief executive. Well, clearly. And the... And the- they don't have a you know an army to choose from in, in that respect. They've got very few, if any, credible internal candidates. Possibly Anthony Jenkins, who's currently head of the retail arm. Uh, definitely no one at Barcap, um, and that leaves them you know with very few options. Everyone thinks they probably will go for an external candidate, possibly Bill Winters, formerly of uh, J.P. Morgan and the Vickers commission one of the members there we've heard other rumors potentially of um other very senior bankers being lined up but i we'll just have to wait and see i mean you know they, it's not going to be easy for them to find a replacement I, no. I think other big outstanding issues are bob diamond's payoff 
Yes. So that's going to be the next fight for the Vince board. Vince Cable coming out today, I think, in favour of a sharply constrained payout. Exactly. I mean, it's a, that's going to be fascinating because Bob Diamond so far has given very little sign that he will voluntarily give up mm. what he's potentially owed by the bank, which could be as much as sort of 15 to 20 million pounds mm. in outstanding share options. Clearly, that would be a PR disaster, you know, just as the bank is trying to present a cleaner reputation mm. and start again and, you know, present this sort of face of uh, doing the right thing. You know, if it's seen to give Bob Diamond sort of close to £20 million, I think it was going to be a very tough one to yeah. pull off. So that could be quite an interesting legal battle. Um, and then clearly just on the broader strategy, you know, what it means for the future of the investment bank. What will the new chief executive decide to do? Could we see a more dramatic sort of reform of the bank? Yeah. So all these questions. These are all we, we existential should, questions. Yeah. And yeah. I think it will take a number of months for those to really be fleshed out. Your point, Charlene, there about the bonus for uh, the outstanding bonus for, for Bob Diamond is a neat segue into our second topic for the day, which is the European Parliament's uh, proposal for a one to one ratio of uh, bonus to fixed pay. And Brooke, this is something you've been looking at for some time. It's been it's been around for a while and then it seemed to gain a lot of momentum a few weeks ago. It's back in the news this week because, or over the weekend, because George Osborne, uh, the Chancellor, said that he was maybe despite expectations to the contrary, said that he was going to fight this uh, this proposal. It's really interesting because there's no real political mileage in coming out for bankers getting paid well. No. But in terms of practically how you run a bank, even if you think bankers are overpaid, increasing the fixed portion of their sal- of their pay is a mistake mm. for a highly cyclical industry where they really they either have to be able to move pay up and down pretty dramatically or they have to lay lots of people off which is not good for anyone. Well, I suppose the European policy makers are say- would say, well, this isn't about fixed uh, moving fixed pay up, it's about constraining bonuses. So we hope that, you know, if someone's paid £200,000 as a fixed salary and they get a million pounds as a bonus, what we'll see is a £200,000 bonus rather than a million pound salary. The problem, of course, is that the Europeans, with the exception of the UK, largely don't pay that much and they have big pension contributions instead. And they don't compete as directly with the US and Asia for talent. So it's, 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 it's a big issue in the UK more than anywhere else. So this Osborne yeah. coming out uh, in favor, if you like, of, of bankers is a big deal. Yeah, no, it is a very big deal. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. Whether he can stave off a cap completely is very hard. to. I think it's unlikely because the parliament feels very strongly about this. By all accounts, the council does not feel as strongly about this. So maybe they can work out a compromise that the cap turns out to be three times or something, which is less. I mean, it's still not great for banks that want to pay their traders a lot. But trading is getting less profitable. So in a way, some of this will sort itself out as long as the cap is not too rigid. Where do you see it going, Charlie? Well, I think from the banks that we've been talking to at a very high level, um, I mean, few of them have spoken out on the record, but they're they're genuinely worried about this because they can't foresee anyone standing up against it, yeah. you know, for, in Europe. Like, they're welcoming George Osborne's support, but whether that will be enough to sort of stem it is, well, I is think, unlikely. I and, think it is significant, the, the Osborne intervention. I think uh, maybe it's uh, not unrelated to the fact that they've got the, the, the kind of 
biggest banker, if you like, in terms of Bob Diamond out of the way. In, in their eyes, he was a political issue for them. Yeah. I mean, the UK banks always talk, and I think Peter Sands, the chief executive of Standard Chartered, you know, came out on the record and said, you know, this will drive, you know, talent away from London to New York, to Asia. I mean, we've heard that argument all the way through the crisis when we've had these increasingly sort of constrained mm. rules around pay in the UK. I mean, to the extent that that's come through, it's it's difficult to know. But again, you know, they're reiterating those kinds of threats. You know, banks sort of HSBC um, is already sort of questioning um, how much it can invest in the UK given the reform. So, you know, these these will have an impact. And, yeah. you know, I think the government is just incredibly aware of that at this yeah. point. No, well, interesting that he uh, has taken that line. Our final topic for today is Spain and the Spanish banking system. So, Miles, we just wanted to uh, catch up with the Spanish bank story, which has kind of gone out of the news for a short while, overtaken by some of the more uh, dramatic events we've been we've been talking about in the UK. But it's going to be back on the agenda over the next couple of days, isn't it? Because European finance ministers are going to be finalising, we think, the details of how the Spanish bank bailout will happen uh, kind of within the auspices of a banking union. Yes, exactly. I, this is a sort of very important moment for the Spanish banking sector. And I suppose we do have to also be careful because we've had many of these quote unquote important moments before. But what we are going to see is the sort of details of how the conditions for this money being dispersed are going to be set. And um, that may well be quite important because we might see things which the government in Spain has resisted in the past coming to fruition, such as the idea of a sector-wide bad bank. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, it's it's clearly the model that worked quite effectively in Ireland. Is it basically that uh, idea that the, the Spanish authorities are now looking at? Well, as, as, as um, far as um, we understand, you know, there is now this idea that um, there would be some form of central agency to house troubled assets from lenders and um, that this would be funded because obviously the funding is one of the most important aspects to this. Um, this would be funded by the European um, bailout money. But there are still, you know, issues which need to be ironed out, most importantly, one of them being devaluation of these assets. You know, well, that was one of the crucial things that the banks were very sorry about in Ireland, of course, when when the assets got transferred into NAMA, which is the vehicle there. They were done at a fairly brutal haircut in many cases. But I gather maybe that's uh, the, the, the Spanish authorities are thinking that they might not do that after all. Yes, well, I mean, this is, this is a controversial point. I mean, there is this idea that these, these um, assets could be valued at fair value and not market value. Um, you know, one argument to support that is that, you know, the market doesn't really exist at the moment for a lot of these assets. Um, but, you know, the counter argument is that this will just perpetuate the problems and the investors and other interested parties won't have real visibility on the extent of the possible losses within the banking sector, which is the same thing we've been talking about for a very long time. It feels like yet another reason for uh, the world to be cynical about the Spanish bank bailout. Well, yes. I mean, this is really, this is, you know, as I said before, this is, we have said many times, you know, this is a turning point for Spanish banks. This is an extremely important moment. But I mean, this really is an opportunity for the problem to be fixed, not just in the Spanish banking sector, but also in the wider Spanish economy, because we have a very vicious cycle at the moment where banks are not lending to anyone. They can't borrow themselves. And the property market is completely moribund. And so, really, if you had some form of central resolution vehicle, as they're calling them, calling in this sort of buzz term, hmm. then you could possibly start to see transactions in the property market again. And that would go some way to 
solving many of the problems which are dogging the Spanish economy at the moment. Well, certainly there isn't a great deal of optimism around Spain still. Maybe this, as you say, will be the thing to kickstart it if those um, doubts around the construction of a bad bank can be resolved. But for the time being, we're seeing um, worryingly high rates that Spain is having to pay for, for new debt. Yeah, because there's just still so much uncertainty. You know, whatever breakthroughs are made, in the end, the market is not convinced. And, you know, Spain's 10-year borrowing costs are, you know, toying with 7%, you know, going above, going slightly below. But this, the, the, the difficulty now is that that is, seems to be the new normal. You know, what, what would be the catalyst to make that fall down to a more manageable rate, um, you know, would really be some real certainty, some real sort of hard details on a roadmap which will be followed over the next one, two years. At the moment, we don't have that. And I think probably even the most optimistic observers would not think we're going to get that from the meetings. Well, let's hope you're wrong and that there is some form of roadmap over the next couple of days. We'll watch that closely, Miles. Thanks very much for joining us. That's all we have time for today, sadly. Um, All remains for me to do is to thank Charlene and Brooke in the studio and to thank Miles down the line in Madrid. For all the latest banking news, go to ft.com slash banking. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.